Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson in just a little bit. Of course, he won those three Super Bowls with Tom Brady, so can't wait to get Ted's thoughts on Tom retiring and maybe get into some great Brady stories from their time playing together. But I did want to start with the Celtics because, man, they have this outstanding win on Wednesday night against the Brooklyn Nets. And then Friday, just a complete dud from the Celtics where they lose to the Phoenix Suns, who, of course, still don't have Devin Booker back yet. And one of the things that stuck out to me is it was just, and probably you too, it was a really bad Jason Tatum game, right? He couldn't get anything going. He was three of 15 from the floor and three of 10 from deep. So he did get to the free throw line 12 times in this game and he did have five assists, but no way around it. It was a bad game for Tatum. And if you look at it, the shot chart in this game was just horrible. So part of the reason that Tatum has jumped in terms of his scoring this year is points in the paint and free throws. So You look at this entering Friday, Tatum's scoring average had jumped 4.2 points since last season. So it's not overcomplicated to see how he got there. So if you look at his numbers in terms of points in the paint this year and made free throws per game, 11.7 points in the paint per game, 7.5 made free throws. So that's 19.2 points per game in terms of in the paint and free throws. How about that number last year? It was at 10.1 points per game in the paint. 5.3 made free throws per game. So you're looking at 15.4 compared to this season where he's at 19.2. So you have that increase because of the fact that he's getting to the paint and he's getting to the free throw line. So I mentioned, yes, uh, Jason Tatum got to the free throw line 12 times in this game. He had 11 points at the free throw line. But how many points did he have in the paint? Zero points in the paint in this game. So that 19.2 points per game is down to just 11 in this game. So by more than eight points of where he usually is. So that's really how Tatum, he didn't get to that 30 points is he didn't get anything in the paint whatsoever. Nothing was easy for him. So as we've seen, Tatum will have his off nights, but it's staggering to me that he didn't have one bucket in the paint the entire night. So 
I chalked that up to just a bad game from Tatum. He just didn't play particularly well. But what's more concerning to me in that game the other night is the C's had a chance to win, right? Or I guess the more disappointing thing I'll say. So they end the third quarter on a furious run and they outscore Phoenix 29 to 17 in that third quarter. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, they haven't played well in this game, but they're heading into the fourth quarter and it's 74 to 73. You're down one points against, again, the Bookerless Suns. The C's are going to win this game. This is how it's going to happen, right? Tatum is on the bench to start the fourth quarter. And this is a big thing that we've been talking about recently is Joe Mazzulla giving Jason Tatum more of a break. Remember, against the Warriors, he played 41 straight minutes. Against the Lakers, he played 41 straight minutes. So when Joe Mazzulla tries to give Jason Tatum a break here, the team just lets the lead go completely away. The C's got outscored 14-4 to in less than four minutes. So you're outscored by 10 points in less than four minutes when Jason Tatum's probably didn't even crack his water bottle open by that point, right? So you go down 88 to 77, and from that point on in the fourth quarter, now you're climbing an uphill battle. You can't exchange baskets, right? So you're trying to make a run in the fourth quarter, but you bake, you build this big hole because Jason Tatum was on the bench. So as bad as Tatum was from a shooting perspective in this game, the team completely fell apart when he was off the floor to start that fourth quarter. And this is now becoming a trend with the Celtics is, and look, I'm not saying that Tatum was good in the game the other day. I'm saying Tatum was bad, but it's just crazy that he goes to the bench and this team falls apart. And you look at the minutes with Marcus Smart off the floor, because of course he didn't play the other day as well because he's still dealing with that injury. Tatum off the floor as well. So when those guys are off the floor this season, Tatum and Marcus Smart, the Celtics have a 107.7 offensive rating with those two guys off the court. Well, how bad is that? Well, the Hornets are the worst offense in the NBA at 108.8. Again, the Celtics with Tatum and Smart on the bench, 107.7. So you're playing at this horrific level when those two guys are off the court. And if you just look at Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon, when they're on the floor without Smart and without Jason Tatum, the Celtics barely have a positive net rating. And their offensive rating is 113.2. That would rank 19th in the NBA. So that's Brogdon and Jalen on the floor together without Smart and Tatum. They're the 19th offense in the NBA. That's just not nearly good enough, right? And it shouldn't be the case when you think about it. Jalen is clearly your second best player. And Brogdon, depending on where you'd rank him, is he fourth? Is he fifth? He's somewhere in the top five in terms of the best players on this team, right? So the reason I just bring this up is because I sort of thought we were done with like the non-Tatum minutes being such a disaster because that was the case for the majority of last season. But we're seeing it again now. It's rearing its ugly head again. And the way that the Celtics started the season, I didn't really feel like this is going to be a problem, right, with the historic offense and all this. But now we're back to it. And if you look at it, the Celtics are 11.7 points per 100 possessions better on offense with Tatum on the floor than when he's off it. Like, it's just a crater when he goes off the court. So they basically go from the best offense in the NBA when Tatum's on the court, better than the best offense in the NBA, to an offense that would rank around 28th in the NBA in terms of offensive efficiency, right? I think we're now realizing also the importance that Smart plays in this offense as well, because as good as Malcolm Brogdon is, the offense has been slightly worse when he's on the court than when he's off the court. The assists are down per 100 possessions when Brogdon's on the court to 24.7, which would be about 15th. With Brogdon off the floor, that's at 27.3, which would be third in the NBA, right? So the ball moves better when Brogdon is off the court. So the ball isn't flying around like it is when Brogdon's sitting on the bench. And this, this is not meant to be an indictment on Brogdon. It's just his style, right? He's not a guy that 
gets everybody involved, so to speak. What he wants to do is get downhill, get to the basket. And his drive game has been huge for this team at times. And the big thing to me, though, is when you look at this, you're going to need Brogdon's skill set like that when you get to the postseason. A guy that can get to the basket, because when you get to the postseason, some of the pretty shit is going to go away, right? You're not going to be able to run this pretty offense all the time. And every once in a while, you need a guy that can just get to the basket and get a bucket. And that's what Brogdon can do. So I know sometimes the offense with Brogdon and Jalen can feel like it's stuck in the mud, but those skill sets are going to be incredibly impactful when you get to the postseason. So even if these numbers don't get better and they don't look good during the regular season, I feel like Brogdon and Jalen's skills are more important in the postseason than they are during the regular season, right? Where Jalen's pull-up game and tough shot making, that is going to be massive in the postseason. We saw it at times last year. And with Brogdon, that ability to just get downhill and overpower you from a physical perspective, that's going to be more impactful in the postseason. So the numbers aren't always going to be great in the regular season with those two guys on the court together because of those skill sets, but you need that type of player when you get into the postseason. So those would be more appreciated down the road when the Celtics are struggling on offense at times. We saw that last year, right? The defense was never an issue in the postseason last year. It was always the offense. And once in a while, you need guys that can bail you out. And that's what Brogdon and that's what Jalen Brown can do. So we're just going to have to live with the fact that the non-Tata minutes are not going to be great during the regular season. And then if you look at it in terms of just, I know it's just one game, but I just feel like that game the other night, man, Brogdon was a minus 28, which is just incredible to see something like that. But like I said, I, I'm not like overly concerned about this stuff, the Brogdon-Jalen lineups. It's just sometimes it can get a little annoying to watch it when Tatum's off the floor and when Smart's off the floor, the ball just does not move around like it does when those guys are out there. But I'm sort of at the acceptance phase of the Tatum minutes now. When Tatum's not on the floor, the offense is not going to be good whatsoever. Okay, so I did want to get to this. So right now, Al is playing 30.7 minutes per game. That is his highest per game total since the 2017-2018 season. Think about that. He hasn't played this many minutes per game since 2017-2018. And look, I know that he's getting back-to-back off, but between Al's age and Rob's health record, so to speak, I would now be shocked if the Celtics don't make a move to add a big. I really would. And all the reporting links the Celtics to bigs as well. And Really, they're not using Grant Williams at the five at all, so they've just they've decided they're not going to do that, really. So if they haven't done that yet, I don't expect them to all of a sudden do it. So the big name out there is Yaka Pertle. And Yaka Pertle, of course, from the Spurs, it's going to cost you an asset to obviously go after a guy like this. He's averaging 12, 9, and 3. I just wonder how he fits on this team, right? He's shooting 59% from the free throw line, too, so he's a problem in the playoffs. But anyway, I just want to look at this. So he's looking for a new contract. He's a free agent after the season. And right now in San Antonio, he's playing 26 minutes a game, right? So he comes here, those minutes are going to go way down and he's looking for a contract, right? Like, I just don't think it's a good fit. And I don't want to rock the boat with this team by bringing in a guy like Jakob Pertl. I'm not saying that he has issues, character issues or anything along those lines. It's just naturally when you're getting ready to get a contract, you're going to be wanting to play minutes. And Jakob Pertl has always been like, great in terms of his rim protecting numbers. Those numbers are all down this year. And actually the Spurs have been worse defensively with him on the floor than with him off the floor. So they actually get worse defensively this season. So look, it makes a lot of sense like to get a guy like Jacoperto that can back up Al and can back up Rob Williams. And I get it. It's like an insurance thing. Totally understand that. I just don't love the fit. I mean, he doesn't bring anything. Obviously, he can't shoot from the outside. He doesn't hit free throws. He hasn't been the same defensive player that he's been in previous seasons. 
and you know he's a rental. Like you're not re-signing him after the season anyway. So I I just would be out on Jakob Purdom. The other big name that we're starting to hear now is Kelly Olynyk, our old buddy, right? And I said the other day, like I don't want to do business with Danny for obvious reasons because he rips people off. But man, I was listening to Bill's podcast and they had a mock trade where they basically sent Peyton Pritchard to Utah for Kelly Olynyk and like Luke Cornett was in the deal as well. And we know Bill made the point. Well, he loves. Pritchard, because he drafted Pritchard, of course, Danny Ainge. So, I mean, I now that I think about Kelly Olenek and his fit with this team, I actually think it's a perfect fit if you can pull off a trade with Utah because Kelly's on a good contract, by the way, making 12.8 this season. And look, we know he's not a great defensive player, but he would juice up the offense, right? I mean, you look at him, he's shooting 40% on threes this year on 3.5 a game. The Utah Jazz's offensive rating with him on the floor is 118.3, so better than the best offense in the NBA. I mean, he's just a massive weapon offensively. His shooting, I'm all in on this one. And you look at Kelly, remember, we have the Olympic game, 26 points in game seven against the Wizards. And look, I know he's got the T-Rex arms, like he's got a short, um, like his wingspan is smaller than his actual height, which you rarely see that. And NBA players, you really see that in people in general. But man, I just feel like this he kind of knows who he is as a player, right? He knows he's not like a star or anything along those lines. He's under contract. He's got an option after this year that we'll fully guarantee. But my point being is when you just look at him, it just feels like it makes perfect sense. A big man that can come off the bench, can hit threes. He'll fit into the system perfectly. Like I, if you could get Kelly Olenek back, I would be very happy at the trading deadline. So I am all in on a return for Kelly Olenek. Okay. Speaking of the bigs, I did want to mention this. Robert Williams made a season debut on December the 16th. Since that time, ready for this? The Celtics, you know where they rank defensively? Number one in the NBA, 110 defensive rating. And I mean, it's more than this. You go through the on-off numbers. Like when he's on the floor, the Celtics have a 107.6 defensive rating. That's two points better than the best defensive team in the league this year, the Cavs, who are at 109.7. That's the impact that Rob has. And by the way, Rob, from an offensive perspective, when Rob's on the court, the Celtics have a 119.6 offensive rating. The best offense in the NBA is 117.9. So with Robert Williams on the floor this season, the Celtics have the best offense in the NBA and the best defense in the NBA. They are outscoring teams by almost 12 points per 100 possessions with Robert Williams on the court. Think about that. The C's, by the way, they lead the league in net rating at 6.1. They're outscoring teams by 12 points per 100 possessions with Rob Williams on the court. The impact is just ridiculous. I mean, you watch that game against Phoenix, and we know he did this last year, too, and he's done it a bunch of times. He's blocking threes. This guy blocks threes. I mean, you don't ordinarily see that from big men. This guy blocks three-point shots. And the, the reason I bring up Rob is just the impact is glaring. We saw it in the NBA Finals last year. He was the most impactful player for the Celtics against the Warriors, right? I mean, when the Celtics were winning those games early on, it's Rob. I mean, Rob is just fucking up the Warriors offense. He's blocking everything. You could tell the Warriors, every time Rob was on the court, they were aware of him. And they were aware of him protecting the basket, right? Like, he's such a game changer for this team. So I bring him up just because I realize how dominant the Celtics have been with Robert Williams on the floor. And I'm just starting to get anxiety about it, right? Because I know that the Celtics, as I mentioned, need to get a big for Rob Williams insurance. Like, I just feel like this is going to be this guy's career where we're always thinking about 
Is he going to make it? Can we just get him to the playoffs? Can we just get him to the finish line? Because I truly believe, and I mentioned this before, if Rob's healthy, the Celtics are going to win the championship. So I just, every time I watch Rob Williams play, like I'm having so much fun doing it, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, don't get hurt. Don't get, and anytime he falls, like I start to panic because I'm like, we need to see Robert Williams finish this season out and get into the playoffs. Anyway, that's a side note. All right. So I do want to get to a former Celtic and now a former net Kyrie Irving, because he has been traded. Multiple people reporting the Shams had it and Chris Haynes had it before anybody that I saw. So basically the deal is Kyrie Irving is heading to the Dallas Mavericks to play with Luka. And going back to the Nets, you have Spencer Dinwiddie, who is a former net. You have Dorian Finney-Smith. You have a first round pick and you have multiple second round picks. So that's sort of the trade in terms of what the Nets get back in this whole situation. So first, just in terms of Kyrie Irving, I actually don't hate this for the Mavericks. Like if you think about it, LeBron, when he played with Kyrie, LeBron was basically the point guard, right? And Luka is the point guard for the Dallas Mavericks and Kyrie can play off him. Like in principle, Kyrie can play off him and just be worried about scoring. That's it. Just do your thing, Kyrie. When I give you the ball, just score. Like, and that's what Luka needs. He needs additional scoring on that team. So it does sort of make sense from a basketball perspective because that Mavericks team, you look at the Western Conference, they're not playing particularly well. They're not as good as they were last year. I mean, they don't have Jalen Brunson anymore. And you bring in a guy that can help fill up the scoring sheet to go along with Luka. I don't hate it from their perspective. But again, you have to think about who it is. It's Kyrie Irving. And what is Kyrie Irving going to do in Dallas? But the fact that he doesn't have a contract right now may tell you like, okay, Kyrie's going to be on his best behavior for as long as he possibly can be. So I don't think it's like an awful fit. And that team is going to be really difficult to stop. Now, in terms of what the Nets got back, because obviously this is important from a Celtics perspective, you're talking about Dinwiddie, who was 17 and five basically this year, 53.5% from the floor, 385 from three. He sort of replaces the Kyrie role. We know that he can get hot and he's a decent player. He's a good player. I like Spencer Dinwiddie. And Dorian Finney-Smith, the thing that helps the Nets here is Finney-Smith is like a good defender in terms of he's a really good wing defender, big guy. He's a body that they can throw at Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. Nine points a game. It's not shot the three well. He is a 3 and D guy, but this year he's just at 35.5% from three-point territory. But if you're looking at this Nets team, like Kevin Durant is playing at an insane level right now in terms of prior to his injury, I just don't think you have enough firepower now when you look at this team. Like, And I didn't think the Nets could beat the Celtics in a series anyway. I mean, we saw what happened last year, but I don't look at this team and see enough firepower to be able to beat the Celtics in a series. And I know like we think about Kyrie and we know how crazy the guy is, but the Nets got worse. They The best player in the deal is Kyrie Irving and he's going to the Dallas Mavericks. So look, maybe... Durant is energized by having all these guys around him now that are sort of role players, if you will. And maybe he has an outstanding postseason or something along those lines. But I don't look at this Nets team as a threat. I thought they were a slight threat with Kyrie, just like, okay, they could give the Celtics a series if both Kyrie and Kevin Durant got hot at the same time. But now I just don't view them as a threat whatsoever. Another wrinkle to this, which Celtics fans will be happy about, how about the fact that he's not going to LeBron, Kyrie? Like LeBron, He's after the game the other night, he's saying that, hey, I don't speak for the front office. Oh, you don't, LeBron? You just make all the fucking moves like trading for Russell Westbrook. You just decide, hey, let's get rid of Kuzma. Let's get rid of all these guys. Or going back to the Davis thing where you wanted to get rid of all the young guys. You, you don't speak for the front office. No, you just make their decisions. Like you had a meeting about the Russell Westbrook trade. You had a meeting about the targets you guys were going to go after, but you don't speak for the organization. I think it's hilarious, too, that it's a first round pick, right? Like the Lakers have been like, 
reluctant to use picks recently because they've spent all these picks to go after Anthony Davis and the Mavericks actually do it. Like LeBron is going to be so mad at the Lakers that the Mavericks pull off this deal. So I do kind of like the fact that he goes to Luka and not to LeBron James. But just piggybacking off what I was saying about Kyrie here is you think about what he did to that Brooklyn organization. He played 50 games in one season. He played in 143 games the last three and a half seasons. That's 51.4% of the game. So basically, flip a coin if Kyrie Irving was going to play or not, right? On multiple occasions, he left the team. He didn't get the vaccine, and this is not a vaccine argument or anything along those lines. I just bring it up because they didn't want him to play in road games. Remember, like he could play in road games, but he couldn't play in home games. But at the beginning of that season, the Nets didn't want him to play. And then they said, oh, you can play in road games. It was just a mess. And really, if you think about it, that's part of the reason the Harden trade happened, because Harden was mad that Kyrie was never playing whatsoever. So that was an issue for him. This year, he gets suspended after tweeting out a link to an anti-Semitic movie. So it was time and time again, the guy would go missing. He would get in some sort of controversy and he was an absolute no-show for them in the playoffs last year, right? Last three games, 10 points, 16 points, 20 points. He shot 32.6%. He had that really good game one against the Celtics, then he just completely fell apart. Like, what did he do for that franchise? It was a disaster the whole time. And now Kyrie Irving, who was on a max contract, this team gets back some role players in return for Kyrie Irving because his value was not high whatsoever. And from my perspective, just to put sort of like a Celtics angle on this, I feel lucky that it was two years and done. And remember, the Celtics would have brought him back. Danny Ainge wanted to bring him back after that 19 season, even though he basically quit on the team and he was doing that weird thing where he was trying to cover Giannis. I, I, don't, I still have no idea what he was trying to do there. But anyway, the Seas, if you think about it, they avoided so much damage with this guy. Like what would have happened to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown playing with this guy? Think about the culture that this organization has built up. It would have just been completely destroyed. The other thing I would mention in terms of Kyrie, is there a more selfish athlete? Kevin Durant partnered up with this guy. He, just a week and a half ago, called Kevin Durant his best friend. And all of a sudden, he was upset with the Nets contract that they offered him because Chris Haynes had reported that there was some sort of clause in terms of a championship in there, and the last year of it wasn't going to be guaranteed. So he was mad about that, about the contract, to the point where he just completely quit on the team. And... The reporting was that if Kyrie wasn't traded, he wasn't going to play again for the Nets. He was just going to sit out the rest of the season. And think about just the lack of loyalty he has to Kevin Durant, right? This is a guy in Kevin Durant that sticks up for you at every turn. Kevin Durant does, right? Every time Kyrie does stupid shit, it's Kevin Durant that defends the guy. And this is how you treat a guy that you called your best friend. And like the fact that Kyrie doesn't think there was going to be stipulations in his contract I mean, how how can anybody lack that much self-awareness to not realize there's going to be stipulations and contracts for a guy like you that continually just goes missing and leaves the team and stirs up controversy after controversy after controversy? How could you not think that was going to happen? It's unbelievable to me, the lack of self-awareness for Kyrie Irving. But from a Celtics perspective, just to put a bow on the whole Kyrie situation, I do think this is a good thing for the Celtics. I think the Nets are less of a threat to you. We'll see what this means for Durant long-term too, because I mean, not to go off on a complete aside, but man, Durant, did he fuck up his NBA career, if you will, where 
This guy was playing with Steph Curry. He joins to play with Kyrie Irving. Then they trade for James Harden. Then James Harden and Kyrie don't get along. So James Harden gets traded. And now Kyrie's not playing either anymore. Like, this is unbelievable to me. Like, the amount of controversy surrounding this team. And Kevin Durant is left there. And now he's got no other star with him whatsoever as he's now, what, in his mid-30s. I mean, it's unbelievable to me, like, what's happened to Kevin Durant's career. But I do think the Nets are less of a threat to the Celtics. Not that I ever thought the Nets could beat them, but they're less of a threat to the Celtics right now. And Kyrie and Luka, we'll see how that pairing works out. It's going to be unbelievable. We'll see how long Kyrie can last in Dallas. What if he gets to Dallas and (laughs) requests a trade before the deadline? That'd be pretty unbelievable. Although with Kyrie, you never know. You never know what's going to happen with this guy. All right, that that was fun. So the day we were recording, we get this news of Kyrie Irving getting traded. Unbelievable. And I'm surprised that it happened this quickly. Really unbelievable. The Nets have got to be happy in some sense. It's like, okay, we don't have to deal with this shit anymore. But man, did that thing go wrong? James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving together won one playoff series. Unbelievable. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. We'll get into Brady's retirement, the hiring of Bill O'Brien, and what to expect from Mac next year as well. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. You see him on NBC Sports Boston now and, of course, on 98.5 The Sports Hub as well. Ted, what's going on, man? Hey, Brian. How you doing, pal? Doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, I'm missing football. We're recording here on Sunday afternoon, and there's nothing to look forward to today. I'm not going to be watching the Pro Bowl, so we got to get used to this, which kind of sucks. But, hey, we did get some headlines this week. So Tom Brady, of course, announced his retirement. And, Ted, I was saying the other day, I was surprised. I thought after how things ended this year that he would be back. Were you surprised that he decided to retire after this year? You know what? I was. I was a little bit. Um it just, uh, I, I thought there would be suitors for him. I think there were. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we, we might not ever know. But, you know, a lot of the insiders and people that uh, would know better than I has suggested that, that that he would have had suitors. And so that being the case, Brian, I thought for sure he was uh, he was going to look for, uh, you know, other avenues to play outside of Tampa Bay. But it sounds like the more I listen to folks, you know, particularly, you know, Albert Breer and, and others uh, this week, uh, said that there were really some constraints when it came to the family and that I think at this point with his kids, it sounds like uh, living in uh, Miami, that really the only option, if he was going to continue to play, Brian, it would have to be a team in Florida. Um, and that, that was still even a long shot just because he was he's really conflicted about where he's at personally and when it comes to his, I don't know, his uh, uh, involvement with the kids. And so it sounds like, at the end of the day, family won over, and if that's the reason why, not that it's my business, even if it wasn't, that's uh, that's a damn good reason to step away from the game. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm interested now to see what Josh does, right? Because I figured he'd put the full court press to try to get Brady. I guess he's sitting there at seventh. He could move up if he wanted to and try to yeah. draft a quarterback because we know Derek Carr is not going to be back there. So it does seem like now Josh is kind of in a tough situation. I wonder if he gets in the Aaron Rodgers sweepstakes now. Well, that's that's what uh, you know. People are speculating. Clearly, obviously, um, you, you know, so that 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 that's some that's that's a team that might uh, might go for. It. I don't I don't know here, Brian. That's a, it's a. I think the next quarterback for 
Josh McDaniels is kind of a fascinating um, subject because, you know, what head coaches want to do when they first get to a place is stay there for a long time. And the way you do that is you don't churn through quarterbacks. And yeah. I don't and, – and it was a tough – it was a tough season for Josh McDaniels and that uh, that Vegas Raiders uh, offense this year, led by Derek Carr. Heck, I mean, he didn't even finish the season, which is fascinating to me. Um, with two games left, they said, you know, you go ahead, we're good. Um, if, if Josh swings and misses again on particularly a highly, uh, uh, you know, highly, uh, you know, expensive quarterback like an Aaron Rodgers – then his days are really limited. You know, you almost think that if if anything, um, a, a name that I thought maybe you were going to bring up is maybe I could see perhaps Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know. Oh, Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy's a guy I look at and I go, okay, he's maybe not he, – he's going to be much more affordable. Um, he's a bridge type of quarterback. It's not an all-in quarterback, but who knows? Maybe if Jimmy comes there and – and uh, and works out that then that's that's a feather in the cap for for Josh McDaniels, but I just think that if I'm Josh, I'm going. How am I going? What's the best way for me to keep my job? Get a bridge guy that buys you time to get a draftee, and that's how I would go. You go in with Aaron Rodgers, and it blows up in your face. I don't think he can uh, withstand that there in in Las Vegas. But I could be wrong. Yeah, Jimmy would certainly be interesting there. He can like reinvent the old Patriots quarterback room. You got Stidham, you got Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> Go get Jacoby Brissett too. Just get like all these former <laughs> Patriots. So getting back to Brady, the one thing I was mentioning the other day, Ted, is like looking back at the situation now, I feel so happy for Tom that he got to go to Tampa, right? Because the way that things were going here in New England, we've seen the offense the past couple of years, right? It's been bad. He hasn't had a lot of weapons. And you go to 19, it was a banged up Edelman by the end of the season. Gronk had retired. They tried Antonio Brown briefly. Obviously, we know the history there. So if Tom stayed in New England, right, and he got some contract done with the Patriots, I feel like his numbers would have been similar to what they were in 19 because he didn't have enough help around him. So him getting to go to Tampa when basically Bill was ready to give up on Tom, he wins the Super Bowl in his first year. The second year, you could make the argument that he should have been the MVP over Aaron Rodgers. Like he was already the greatest of all time. But this Tampa thing, the more and more I think about it, it makes his career even more impressive that he got the post-Bill Super Bowl. And look at what Bill's doing right now without Tom. Totally agree. Totally agree. It, you know what? There's got, there's a piece of Tom, and he knows it. He'll ne he might never admit it, that is thankful for what happened at the end of, of his time here in New England. Now, you know, I, I look at it and I go, the Patriots should have never let him go. He should have retired a Patriot. What was Bill thinking? But for as far as legacies go and I, I crack up Brian when I hear people say that Bill Belichick's legacy is intact no it's not are you kidding me it is it's a fluid that thing is not it is not by any means uh is the story been told totally written about Bill Belichick because he wanted to coach without Tom Brady to me that is very evident if you don't see it he'll never say it but if you can't read between the lines and all the information is out there for you to to kind of gather about how it went down here at New England when uh, Tom left, and you know after you know 2019, then you're just not you're not paying attention. Bill wanted to coach without Tom, and the thing is, Tom going to Tampa Bay, you said it enhanced his legacy like tenfold. We already knew. I thought after, and I was on the field after the Super Bowl in Houston when they beat the Atlanta Falcons 28 mm -hmm. to three. I think that was his fifth one. 
I said right then and there, the debate is over. Tom Brady's the greatest ever. There's never going to be a better quarterback. And then look what he's done. He's won two more Super Bowls since then. He has only enhanced his his legacy by going to Tampa Bay. So you're absolutely right. There's got to be a part of Tom. I think deep down he's like, all I did was put my legacy in, in hyperdrive by going to one of the worst run franchises. I mean, you talk about the the you know, as far as respectability on the NFL landscape, Tampa Bay was at the bottom and he did what he did in one year. Unbelievable what he did for his legacy. And you see the shots and the bullets that uh, Bill Belichick's legacy has been taking ever since he left. Yeah, and look, it's reality for Bill, right? I mean, we all know one playoff win prior to Tom Brady, and since Brady's left, Bill is 25 and 25, and we just had that huge piece in the Herald from Karen Gregan and Andrew Callahan where basically it was the most dysfunctional season ever. I mean, this is all happening. It's not a coincidence that all this stuff happens after Tom Brady leaves the organization. I do wonder this, Ted, from Bill's perspective. Do you think at the end of 19 when Bill was ready to move on, from Tom, do you think it was more he just wanted to coach without Tom and kind of prove his legacy, like without Tom, even though it's not working out for him well? Or do you think that the roster was so bad in 19, like that he had constructed where he couldn't actually properly evaluate Tom? Like when he looked at the numbers, he said, well, okay, may- maybe Tom's not the same guy anymore. Do you think it was more about the roster or he just wanted to move on from Tom? No way, Brian. Don't, no, 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 no. Don't even put that second alternative out there. Look, I. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying, the roster. I don't know. I, I think he wanted I, – I will go to my grave. And, he, you know, he will never admit it. But, boy, if you know the psychology around Bill Belichick, and I feel like I have a pretty good handle of it, playing for him for six years, going through contract negotiations, him and I having uh, our, 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 little, our little issues, him and I personally. Um, just I know the man very, very well. And I think it's, it was, it's the former. He wanted mm-hmm. to, to show everybody – that it was, it was, it's him, that it's all about him. It's his system, his philosophies, uh, his ideologies. Um, you know, it was, uh, when he particularly, one of the, you know, famous kind of lines and, 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 uh, I bet, I think it was, was it Ian O'Connor's book where, uh, it was said from a staffer, anonymous staffer with the New England Patriots that they felt that they could win with, you know, a top 15 quarterback. I think that's Joe Judge, by the way, Ted. I think he oh, said is that, is that okay. That's so I think Judge. that that's my guess. I think that's, that was Joe Judge. That's the that's the rumor. Anyway, I've heard that before too, Brian. I, for, I forgot exactly what it was. Um, way to go, Joe. Um, because but <laughs> my feeling is he's he's that that's really how they felt there. I you know knowing Bill, that's that's how he's particularly a guy drafted in the sixth round. Bill Belichick drafted him. In the sixth round. And don't forget, he's put it out in his statements this past week. He came yeah. as a quote on virtual, you know, with no fanfare, fanfare. We drafted him, you know, yeah. with little to no fanfare. And he leaves as the greatest player ever. That's Bill telling you, I drafted him. I made Tom Brady. And so that's how Bill thinks. That's his psychology uh, around that. So he, I guarantee you, he wanted to separate himself from Tom and because the narrative is always going to be, whether Bill Belichick likes it or not, at least for a lot of people, this Bill Belichick's the greatest coach in the history of football with Tom Brady. That last part, I think he wanted to get away from that. But no, 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 no. He's never going to escape that uh, if, until he wins without Tom Brady. And uh, we've seen what the last three uh, years have looked like without him. Not too good. 
Yeah, he's been a 500 coach since Tom Brady left. I mean, you can't escape the numbers. That's just the reality. He's been a me- his team has been mediocre since Brady left the organization. So I've been going back, Ted, and like watching a lot of Brady stuff. I watched the final drive he had when you guys beat the Rams, which is just like even like the spike was cool. Like he's just like it, I remember he got blitz. He just he runs to the right side, just throws it out of bounds. He was just so cool. John Madden was famously saying like, "Hey, you should play for overtime here." And then he yep. said, "I have goosebumps." all the drives against Atlanta, Seattle, like so many of them. But for you, like obviously he replaces Drew Bledsoe in that 0-1 season after the Mo Lewis hit and you guys win the Super Bowl. Was there a moment when you realized, was it his second year? Was it his third year where you realized, okay, there's something different. Like this guy is going to be really special. Was there a game, anything like that? Yeah, you know, and I think it's great. Just the 0-1, that that drive to to win the football game in the, uh, in the, in the Super Bowl against the Rams, I think is really a perfect example for what I'm about to tell you. And that is people would always ask me, did you, how did you know Tom Brady was special? And it was kind of like, I would tell people like nothing really, really just jumped out of you. It wasn't like, wow, you see how strong his arm is or wow. You see how fast he is. We know he's, he's not, you know, the, the most athletic guy on his feet. Now he's an athlete, right? I mean, if you've ever seen him play golf, I mean, the guy's an athlete, but you know, his, his, his tangible skills, didn't blow you away, but there was one thing that I thought he was an expert at, and it was early on, and it was he was clearly better at one situation than Drew Bledsoe, and it was far and away, not even close, how much better he was than Drew at this one situation, and that is the two minute drill. When we had, we would go uh, when we would play, we we for number one defense would go up against the number two uh, offense which Tom Brady was the leader of in that 01 training camp. And, boy, he would boom, 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 right down the field, making good decisions. Adam Vinatieri go out there and kick the field goal. We it's all simulated in practice, two-minute drill. He was so good at that situation. And you bring up all the different Super Bowls in which he brought us back and, and the Patriots back. That was his, that was his superpower early on. Um, I, I, I always tell a story right before the beginning of that Super Bowl in 01, him with a towel over his face, taking a nap on, on the floor in front of his locker. I thought, man, the, this guy is cold-blooded. I mean, he this is the <laughs> biggest game. And I'm like, you know, doing everything I can just to keep my nerves calm. And he was taking a nap before the Super Bowl. When he first got in into practice after uh, Drew got hurt, uh, after week three of that 01 season when Mo Lewis hit him, one thing that always stood out about me, uh, uh, about him, Brian was his enthusiasm and he was so excitable and so gregarious and he was so hyped in practice and for in the pro level you didn't see that you know he I mean he was come on guys let's go and he's screaming he's yelling (laughs) he's getting everybody hyped and he's this is practice settle down young boy we have a lot of practices but his enthusiasm (laughs) jumped out at me his 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 poise jumped out his calmness jumped out his his ability to think his way through a game, like in that two-minute drill, jumped out at me. And those aren't really traits that you would maybe highlight being in a great quarterback. But when you think about it, it all makes sense. And that that was Tom Brady, his poise, his coolness under pressure, his ability to think his way through a football game is what made him the greatest ever. 
Yeah, I was watching that Brady documentary, too, because you bring up to practice and Rodney was talking about like how they would go at it with you guys when the defense would oh, yeah. go at it with Brady. Was there like just like a ton of shit talking when that was going like with Brady going after you guys? A ton of it. It was it was great. It was great because he could handle it. Um, you know, we had some big personalities. We had a lot of alphas on defense and we were a very confident unit uh, in, in, in the. I was on the first three championships, that 01, 03, 04 defenses, big, big time dames, uh, junkyard dogs. And you know what? And that was that was another thing about Tom is he was a highly competitive guy. And that was something. And so the, the, the shit talking was was all the time. It was great. And it brought up the <laughs> level of, of energy and, and 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 the competitiveness. And it made us better uh, on game day. Um, and, and that was that was awesome. But what you don't see, particularly from six round draft picks, is it when a when when the incumbent quarterback who is loved in that on this in this area, Drew Bledsoe, an accomplished quarterback in his own right at that time in 2001, gets hurt. A six round draft pick going in, you don't see them take it. Guys like that, they they just they, they want to keep the seat warm for the incumbent. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. Tom saw that as his opportunity. Like, I mean, a lot of guys do at other positions on the, on the team. You just don't see that at the quarterback position, considering where he was drafted, considering who he was trying he was trying to beat out. But he took it. And when he got his chance to go and practice that next week, he was acting as if he was never going to look back. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. He took the starting job. And he never looked back. All right. So do you have like, and maybe it is that 0-1 drive. Do you have like a favorite Brady moment with you as his teammate? Was it a certain game? Was it that Rams Super Bowl? You know what? That that Rams Super Bowl was was pretty special just because it was the first play. The 03 Super Bowl in Houston, Texas against the Carolina Panthers. If you if you go back and look at that game, you know, the 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 uh at the end of the game, it was it was kind of a you know, a, a last second drive. I mean, Carolina still got the ball back, but with like just a few seconds and yeah, and we were able to seal the game then, but his, his, it was essentially, he had a game winning drive in that game too. And I remember I was standing next to Larry Izzo and, and uh, Tom comes over and he just kind of so, he was so calm. I mean, it was, <laughs> that was an unbelievable second half too. Remember the first half was all defense and the second half, I yeah. mean, it was, it, both teams were going up and down and scoring. On, on 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 the defenses and Tom, I just remember walked over to me and Larry. He's like, "All right, well, not much else we can do. Just we just need Adam to kick it through there." And then <laughs> and then they show they show Tom on the sideline when the ball goes through. Um, we're in me, Larry, and Tom are standing there looking at the ball go through, and we're all going crazy. But I just remember how cool he was coming off the field after putting us in position to kick what essentially was a game winning field goal against Carolina. Um, I'll never forget that, you know, I, and I, I just will never forget again, his, how cool under pressure he was. If you remember that Oh three season, I don't know how many games we were like tied or behind going into the fourth quarter that year, but it was a lot, but we won all, almost all of them. I think we, yeah. I think we won 14 games that year. I'm pretty sure. And it, 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 a lot of times it was dip tuck at the very end of games, but we never panicked because our quarterbacks never panicked. And I always said this, I always reference when I'm flying, and I'm flying and there's turbulence and the the plane's bouncing up and down. You know what I do the first thing I do, Brian? I look at the flight attendants, and I look at the flight, and if the flight attendants are calm, I'm calm, all right? 
It's the same thing on a football team. Tom Brady, our quarterback, he wasn't ever panicked. He never, he never, uh, you know, lost control. He was always in control, and that made us the whole team kind of play and act the same way. All right, so you play with him when it was first starting to heat up with Tom and Peyton Manning. Like, who's the better? And a lot of it was you guys on defense, your battle with Peyton Manning, where you're, you guys owned him. I mean, it wasn't until, what, 06 until Peyton could kind of crack the code. So it took a while for him to do that. 7-1 and one against him. 7-1. I, I, I 7-1. Seven seven and one. Seven and one. He didn't start beating <laughs> the Patriots until after I retired after the 05 season. You guys had some unbelievable – he threw like four picks in one of those playoff games too. That might have been the 0-3 one, and that's when Peyton was already starting to win MVPs. But did yep. you guys – could you guys tell like there was a little extra emphasis with Tom when he was getting ready to play Manning? Did he ever like kind of – could you tell like that game meant something to Tom, like the comparison with Manning or no? I think it was still a little bit too early. Yeah. I think it was a little bit too early, and that and it goes back to Bill Belichick's statement. Tom came in with not a lot of fanfare, and even though – you know, you know, Tom was very successful early on. A lot of people credited the defenses he played on or the kicker or the coach, right? Yeah. And not necessarily the, the quarterback as much. And so, you know, we, we know that Peyton came in, I believe it was 1998, as the number one overall pick. And so he came in, like, with a huge head start. And so I don't feel like Tom was being compared to him early on as much. Um, but, you know, that 4 season, he was. And, and you talk about the the pick, uh, that was the division round. Uh, the Ty Law picked off Peyton three times. We just played him in cover two, Brian. It was unbelievable. Uh, Peyton, <laughs> he, he just he, – we played that cover two to high safety and Ty, and Ty would bait him into throwing into that kind of that – the, the – uh, about 17 yards in the in that window there by the sideline. That's where the soft spot is in cover two. And he would he would Ty would come always bait him. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying. He didn't I didn't see him ever kind of all of a sudden change his behavior when we played uh Peyton. Although I'm I know in the competitor he is, I know he probably uh you know it, it, it meant something to him, but he he was kind of locked in uh against uh everybody. It didn't matter who the opponent was. God, I'm thinking now like back to those defenses. You guys are so loaded. Ty Law, Rodney Harrison, yourself, Brewski. I mean, Seymour. Yeah, a Willie McGinnis, Richard yeah. Seymour. You know, oh. that was in 04. We had Vince Wolford. We had Ty Warren, another first rounder. I mean, we had loaded. Ted yeah. Washington was my nose tackle in 03. Um, you know, uh, Roman Pfeiffer, one of my favorite, you know, we used to wear the old Rams when, when the Rams were in L.A. the first time. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's how old Pfeiffer was, but still a baller late in his career. Um, a ton of great players. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and Vrabel, too. And now Vrabel, obviously, Vrabel. doing a great absolutely. job coaching as well. So, hey, one more Brady one. So, it feels like with most athletes, there's something with them, right? Like, like as a teammate, right? Jordan, like, he was kind of a dick. We watched that documentary, right? Oh. The same thing could be said about, like, Kobe. He was that way, too. Aaron Rodgers is, like, aloof. You don't know what you're going to get from the guy all the time, right? And it just feels like with Tom, like, you've never heard a teammate say anything bad about him. Like, how rare is that in a teammate where this guy, at he's coming into stardom, like he's becoming a celebrity, not just like in the NFL world when you played with him, but it just feels like everybody likes him. Yeah, he's a, he's a good dude. I mean, he's, you know, he's a little weird now. Yeah, he's got a little weird. I mean, but, you know, <laughs> Tom's, yeah, that success, you know, that kind of, I mean, that kind of success, you know, I don't know, uh, in fame, 
you know, he's gotten he's gotten a little out there, in my opinion. I love you, Tom, but you know, yeah, he but he's <laughs> at the core of him is a really good guy. At the core of Tom Brady, great family, great mom and dad, uh, three sisters. He's the youngest. Um, so probably a little spoiled being the only boy. Um, but just an awesome, awesome family. So he's he's a good human being. Um, and so uh, he, he, you know, he's one of those guys and I, and it kind of, it's, it's what a lot of people would say about Bill Clinton, the, the Clinton effect, you know, like when you meet him, I'm, I was always told that, you know, he's kind of one of those guys that looks you right in the eye. Like, that's the thing about Tom, you go up, you meet Tom. And if he's, if he's, he's the kind of guy that looks you right in the eye, he doesn't look to see who else is there that he can talk to. And so when you're talking to him, you feel like he's really listening. And that is. And that is something that uh, is kind of a rarity. I'm not going to lie. With people like at that, at that, uh, you know, at that level that are that that level of fame and stardom. Um, but he was a, he's a very grounded guy from his family. He's got a great family, and so um, good dude, you know. And and even the success, you know, he might have gotten. Uh, I think maybe as he got older, uh, my feeling is he got a little bit more maybe. Uh, you know, more family oriented and not as much. He did. I will say this about time. He didn't do a ton with teammates, a little bit here and there. Bledsoe was different. Brought guys to his house, bring them over for holidays. Tom kind of kept to himself, did his own thing a little bit more, but that's fine. Hey, it doesn't matter. As long as you're a cool dude, when you come to the, uh, you know, come to the facility and you help us win football games, that's all that matters. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I did hear like he used to go up to every rookie and like introduce him, introduce himself to the rookies. At some point, the rookies are going to be like, "Yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> You're Tom Brady." I heard that story. I like that. <laughs> that, that. That doesn't surprise me. He's he's he's. There is a humility to Tom that you know some people might say at times a false humility, but I don't. I don't think so. There is a humility to Tom that's uh, it's it's pretty awesome to see. All right, so getting to the Patriots here, our nightmare is over. Matt, Patricia, and Joe Judge are no longer in charge of the offense. They bring in Bill O'Brien, which it felt like that was the obvious move from the beginning. He was going to be their guy. So do you think this is now going to be like Josh, where Josh has control of the offense? I mean, basically, Bill gives him the offense. Do you think that's the power now that O'Brien has, where he just has total control of that thing? I think it should be the way it is. I, I, that, I'm a little bit worried that it's not, I, but I, I can't imagine... I can't imagine Bill O'Brien would accept terms any other way. I can't imagine the Brian that he would he would come here and be like, "Hey, Bill, you know, I just I'm I'm lucky to be here. You know, I just thanks for the job, and you you tell me who to hire, and you tell me who to play." And no, no, no I think Bill O'Brien is his status is such that he's well respected. He's an accomplished head coach, um, four division titles there in Houston. When I covered him, when I used to live in Houston and do radio down there, um, he was. Uh, you know, seven years, four division titles, and I and I tell people, you know, his I think high water mark as far as coaching uh, uh, quarterbacks was in 2017, and 2017 was the year they drafted Deshaun Watson. Now he went into the training camp in 2017 and put it up for a quarterback kind uh, of competition, if you will, between Deshaun Watson and Tom Savage. So, <laughs> um, all to our surprise, Tom Savage won out. Um, and he started that first game against Jacksonville. And Brian, he lasted one half. Bill O'Brien pulled him out after halftime, put Deshaun Watson in. And when Deshaun Watson went into that second half of that week one game against Jacksonville, and then he got tore his ACL eight weeks later in practice, between that week one game and, and week eight game before he tore his ACL, 
the Texans with Sean Watson and Bill O'Brien calling the plays had the best offense in the NFL in that time. So give him a good quarterback, and I think he can really do something. My feeling is he will get more autonomy than than uh, than, than the old coaches. Clearly, <laughs> um, you know what? And my guess is he'll ha- he'll have some. It'll be somewhat similar to what Josh McDaniels had because I think he's an accomplished guy who's been in the system before and built trust. And my feeling is, uh, I think Belichick, for the most part, will stay out of the way. And it was being reported that Bill was actually involved in play calling this year um, on the offense at certain times in different uh, junction points in a game. My feeling is that uh, those days are done since uh, Bill O'Brien's here. Yeah, and another interesting component to that, too, is, and I remember, by the way, that year you're mentioning Deshaun Watson lit up the Patriots. Like, the Texans should have beat the Patriots. He absolutely lit them up, but... The other interesting component is, well, O'Brien's a former coach in the NFL, and you said he had a lot of success in Houston, and Gerard Mayo, we know, is like a coaching candidate in the future, will eventually be a head coach. It is interesting that now those two guys are on Bill Belichick's staff. Like, they're, if Kraft ever wants to say, you know what, Bill, enough's enough. Like, he actually yeah. has some guys, like, internal candidates in-house. But so speaking of O'Brien, um, we were complaining all season long about like the lack of play action. Mac was 39th out of 41 qualifiers and drop back percentage out of play action. Crazy. But what we found out in the Herald piece is they didn't know how to scheme up the play action to like sort of make it work with the running game, which is like amazing to think about that. These are NFL head coaches. They didn't know how to do that. It was just mind boggling to me. But the other thing too, like with O'Brien is we know that he comes from Alabama, RPO-heavy system. And you mentioned it when he had Deshaun Watson. Watson was way up there in attempts out of RPOs. And you go back yep. to Mack at uh, Alabama, it was 19% of his dropbacks out of RPOs, 73 of 78 his senior year, 890 yards, 10 touchdowns, no picks. I mean, this guy was like the best RPO quarterback in the entire country. So do you think that this is something we see a lot of with Bill O'Brien where they dig into that stuff? Because clearly, Mac, he actually called for it at one point last season. He said, I think RPOs are cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he did. And he also said he wanted to be coach starter. Well, he's going to get coach starter by Billy O. And you're damn right, Brian. Uh, RPOs will be brought back to the Patriots offense is my guess. Um, it, it just... Stylistically, I think that's what Mac likes. I think he likes being a shotgun. There you go. You got the RPO. You do fake the handoff. Now, you know it's it's not, maybe it might not be the uh, the most deadliest of RPOs because Mac Jones is not a running quarterback. But it's that's that's beside the point. It's the play action piece of it that we all care about, and that I think Mac Jones his rookie year when Josh McDaniels was here, he was so good at. I mean, he was one of the best play action passers under Josh McDaniels. So. My guess is that element that Bill O'Brien is obviously very familiar with, that Mac Jones was very familiar with at Alabama, and then to some degree here with uh, Josh McDaniels in his first year, that element has to be brought back. I, I can't imagine that uh, you know that not that not being a part of it. So play action is going to be a big, big part of this offense because it has to be. I mean, that it just they we you know the Patriots don't have the weaponry to to uh to get away with just doing straight dropbacks and so and that's what Mac's good at so my guess is you'll see a lot of RPOs well speaking of the weaponry that you mentioned I'm interested like they go all in to get Bill O'Brien they get an established offensive coordinator do they continue on that trajectory and say hey we actually do need this thing called the legitimate number one receiver like do you think they'll try to get into the trade market or all you think that's just not Bill's MO Ryan this this is one of the, I, I kind of slammed my head against the wall because 
it's we all want a big name. We all see what the Miami Dolphins are doing. Um, you know, to some degree, maybe what the Kansas City Chiefs were doing. But you you see teams loading up. I mean, you know, you're getting young quarterbacks weapons, and you're seeing it. You know, Joe Burrow. You see what it does for Joe Burrow. You see what Stephon Diggs does for Josh Allen. You see what a Tyreek Hill does for you know uh, does does for you know a two attack of Iowa. You need to get that guy for 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 Mac. It's just that's what Bill. Does. He doesn't do that. He doesn't he doesn't believe in that. He doesn't he doesn't want to deal with the headaches. He doesn't want to to have an offense predicated on a number one where you, it's predictable and then you go to him week in, week out. And you know what, Bill? You can get away with that when you have the greatest quarterback quarterbacking your 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 football team. But when you – Mac Jones is far from being Tom Brady. you got to surround him with weapons. He doesn't want to pay him, and I don't think he wants to deal with the headaches that a lot of these top receivers bring. But I will say this about with Mac Jones. I think you need to get young – uh, receivers, you know, don't bring in guys that are at the end of their career. You know, a lot of people are talking about uh, D Hop, and I love uh, DeAndre Hopkins just from covering him in Houston. He's a phenomenal player, but you know, he's thirty years old. Mac Jones is still getting he's getting started in his career. It's like you need young receivers for him to kind of grow up with, right? Um, and 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 you know, Tom grew up with Gronk. Tom grew up with Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, um, and those kind of guys. You need to have. Guys that he can he can kind of grow up with through the through the program to get some con- consistency with and, and get a relationship with, and so I would keep drafting him. Although I think tackles their number one need uh, in this year's draft. Keep drafting him, or you know I don't know you're not going to really trade for a guy that's uh, you know maybe in his first or second year. But there's restricted guys out there that Patriots sometimes will go after. But yes, they 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 need receivers. And they need, I think, younger ones, not guys that are at the end of their career that might have a year or two left in the tank. Yeah, that's a really interesting point on the age thing, right? So they can like work together throughout this rookie contract that Max on. That's why I wonder maybe if it's they go after Jerry Judy, they go after T. Higgins, like some of these younger-ish receivers, and the oh. Bengals are not going to be able to pay everybody. And you make a good point. Now, that's the target for Bill, just like Kendrick Bourne last year, you know, where Bill loves receivers that have already been in the, the league. Because he hates rookie young wide receivers, he does. I think <laughs> I think so. He'll never say that, but it just looks like it. So you know, like a T Higgins would be a perfect guy, right? I mean, he's he's. I don't know if he's finished out his first contract, but that that point is is you get him at least at the at the beginning of their second contract, if not a little bit before, and then that, that would be okay with me. That that fits the profile of a receiver I'm looking for. All right, Ted, before we let you go, do we get, like, in a game, a Mac-Bill O'Brien shouting match a la Bill O'Brien-Tom Brady? <laughs> I think we do. I think – why not? <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about combustible, and they, they both are. And, and so, it, you know, it's it, it's fascinating because the – you know, the, the the nickname for – at least I don't know if it was a public nickname, but for Mac down in Alabama, we all come to find out was McEnroe, right, because of his temper. That's what <laughs> I was told. And, like – Okay, and then so what? Bill Bill O'Brien's uh, his nickname was what was it? Some to- uh, the teapot, uh, teapot, right? Yeah. So teapot <laughs> and McEnroe. Uh, my my feeling is Mac though he's going to fall in line this year, Brian. Right? I think he he was probably part of him. Uh, he got the re- desired result, and the fact that he got a new offensive coordinator. So part of Mac 
doing the the you know the bitter beer face and you know the bit face and 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 the scowl and and making it public to everybody that he didn't you know care for his offensive coordinator. It didn't reflect well on Mac at the end, at least. But he's got a new offensive coordinator because of it, and that's I think all he cares about. And my guess is he is going to toe the line more than ever. So. My feeling is tempers will flare, but it might not blow up like it did with Tom because Mac is very going to be very conscious of of his image considering uh, how, the, the the shot his image took this year. Yeah, and I think he's just going to be so happy, Ted. Going from Josh to Patricia and Judge, that was just obviously that was difficult for him. And now he gets a guy that he's at least somewhat familiar with, and we know he's actually a professional offensive coordinator. He's not – some guy that was a defensive guy, they turned into the coach, a bad head coach. Like, it just, it matches going to be like, finally, we're back to normal. We have actual real coaching again. So, Max going to ask Billy O, you know, uh, coach, uh, if the defense does this, what do we do? And Billy O will have an answer for him, right? <laughs> so, that, that's the old, one of my no favorite. coach didn't have an answer for him. <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of the Herald piece. Yeah, we'll get to that later, guys. Okay, yeah. well, this is kind of important. Like, I mean, that was Crazy. what a mess. I mean, that is really unbelievable. I still, I can't believe Bill did that. Like, I can't believe he had those two guys coaching. It's unbelievable to me. All right, that is three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. Check him out, of course, on NBC Sports Boston. You can hear him on 98.5 The Sports Hub as well. Ted, great stuff, man. Really appreciate the time as always, my friend. Okay, buddy. You bet, Brian. Take care, pal. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ted Johnson. Really enjoy chatting with Ted. You can tell how much Ted liked playing with Brady too, man. I mean, that is is still, I still cannot believe how much he enhanced his legacy by going to Tampa. It's unbelievable. You didn't think he could? He did. All right, let's get to a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hey, Brian, it's Dave Taylor down in North Carolina. They just uh, want to thank you for the great work. Uh, love that you bring the trifecta every night. Great analysis, superior entertainment, and solid takes. Hey, on the occasion of uh, TV12's retirement, a uh, couple of Patriots thoughts here on the Belichick versus Bregas, uh, Belichick Brady, the legacy. Uh, I stipulate Belichick's legacy a little bit tarnished due to his record without Tom. On the other hand, though, it still takes a great coach to get great players to play within a system, consistently uh, selfless football with a lot of shifting personnel over the years. So you got to give Bill a little bit of a hat tip there. Plus, those early years, before TB12 was the GOAT, he was clutch, but he wasn't the GOAT. A lot of that was Belichick's defense, his schemes, his ability to uh, take away the opponent's strengths. So, uh, anyway, and then third thing, for, uh, third thing on the Belichick side, try to name a legendary coach in NFL history. Uh, that 
you know, their their championships weren't attributed to some great quarterbacks. I mean, all the way back to Hallis, he had Sid Luckman, uh, Otto Graham. He delivered almost every one of Paul Brown's championships. Lombardi, Starr, Knoll, Bradshaw, Bill Walsh, Montana, and then uh, Steve Young. So uh, I think from a historical perspective, we got to cut Bill a little bit of slack there. Uh, but then uh, finally, a smaller issue that bugs the living crap out of me. Of all the great NFL championship teams, us, Steelers, Cowboys, Niners, uh, Packers, there's only one team that abandoned the iconic uniforms associated with their greatness, us. What the hell are we doing in these candy store Pop Warner uniforms? Bring back <laughs> the legendary Patriots uniforms of the last two decades. Let's get a little dignity back. I mean, we need all the help we can get these days. Hey, Brian, keep up the great work. Love the show. Thanks. All right. Thanks for the kind words. That's great. I, I hate the Patriots uniforms. You've heard me talk with James White about this. I despise the uniforms. I think they're horrible. I don't understand what's wrong with the Pat the Patriot uniform. Those things are absolutely phenomenal. I would love them to just go back to that full time. I hate the all blue uniforms, too, that they're wearing now. I, I would even prefer the 90s Patriots uniforms, like the Drew Bledsoe era Patriots uniforms, than the ones they're wearing right now. Those things are horrible. So that's a great point. Uh, in terms of Bill, the only guy I can think of that essentially built up a dynastic run without an elite quarterback for the entirety of that run is like Joe Gibbs won with three different quarterbacks. Like, like that's it. They, so you're, you're totally right about that. And I do agree that Bill deserves credit for the beginning of Tom's career, clearly, and developing the player and having the infrastructure and the players around him to be able to go on those runs. I'm certainly with you on that. But I do think also, as we were chatting with Ted a little bit, this is sort of Bill's legacy. It's like it's always going to be unless he can turn this around in the foreseeable future. We're always going to say, well, what's Bill's record without Tom again? Oh, yeah, it's not very good. Like that is part of Bill's legacy, whether it maybe it's fair or unfair. I think it's totally fair. I mean, now he's got a long runway. He drafted a quarterback in the first round. We'll see if he can sort of put an end to that noise, if you will. But the trend or the direction they're going right now, it doesn't really feel like he's going to do that. All right. Who's up next? Uh, hey, Brian, it's Mason from Cleachy again. Um, the biggest thing that I've seen recently with the Celtics is watch the overtime against the Lakers, and Jalen comes up and hits a three-pointer in, like, the most aggressive, smooth way. Um, and I think it carried over to the next game when they routed the next the next, that first quarter. He just looked so confident. I think the... Uh, Energy looks like it has shifted, and I'm um, looking for big things going forward. Yeah, I thought the energy shifted, too, and then they ran into the Phoenix Suns on Friday night. Well, I'll tell you this. There was not a lot of energy from the team that game. But to your point about Jalen, I'm with you. It's the threes that Jalen takes that aggravate me are when they're not in rhythm. I have no problem with him coming up and taking a pull-up three. I have no problem with him coming off a screen and taking a three. But it's these ones where he just sort of he's just dribbling the ball at the top of the key or on the wing, and he just decides to pull up. Like, those are the bad threes that Jalen takes. But all in all, you know, it's one bad game against the Suns on a Friday night. It's not the end of the world, but, man, they really have got to figure out the non-Tatum minutes. All right, I did want to get to this stuff from Evan Drellick's book that is just coming out. They had a big launch party Saturday night, and naturally when these books are coming out, and Drellick wrote a book about the Astros cheating scandal, when these books come out, the way that people sell them, obviously, is you put out a lot of excerpts there. And... We just had Alex Cora on, what, Wednesday, and then two days after that, this stuff comes out about all the stuff in his, the book about Alex Cora, and 
he's one of the main talking points in the book, right? I mean, he was the guy that was behind the scheme and all that. So this is from the book. When Cora arrived in Boston to manage the Red Sox in 18, he would occasionally talk about the Astros sign stealing from 2017, even brag, sometimes in a late night setting. A quote from the book, he would go around the clubhouse and say, quote, we stole the fucking World Series. Like that's something he'd say to people in the clubhouse. So this book naturally is not going to paint Cora in a good light. But this is where I'm at with this. So Cora has addressed this. It's not any new information. Now, it's new details like stuff from anonymous sources and anonymous people in the clubhouse talking about Alex Cora. But none of the actual information is new. We knew that there was a cheating scandal with the Astros. We know that. We know about all this stuff. We know that Cora was suspended for a year. So it's not new information. It's new details, so to speak. Right. So and Cora has addressed this on multiple occasions. He talked about it in 2021, like every week. Okay, like he probably apologized for this 5000 times in 2021. And look, the Astros cheated. We all know this. We knew the scheme. We knew they were hitting the garbage can. Right. So, yeah, Cora is not going to look good in this book. But from my perspective, where I sit, it doesn't really change anything for me. It isn't like we got new information. It's just guys talking about Alex Cora. Right. By the way, another element to this. I still can't believe none of the players were punished for this. Just Beltran, who had retired. That's it. Beltran was the only player that got punished for that, and he was a retired player. It was Cora and it was A.J. Hinch. None of the players who were all in on the scheme as well got punished whatsoever. They got immunity. So I, I still can't believe that happened that way. Like, OK, yeah, you guys just tell me what happened and you won't get suspended. I mean, it's kind of a joke that it got to that. But like good for Evan Drellick getting this book. I know Evan a little bit. So good for him getting this book. It just from my perspective, it just doesn't change anything. Like with me, like we see all these juicy stories that are coming out over the past few days about what went on there. We knew that this happened. We know that Alex Cora was involved in it. How many times has he apologized for it, right? So I just, nothing really changes for me. And look, if you want to read the book, go ahead and read the book. I just, I don't really have much interest in it. And it feels like, okay, they're going to talk about Cora. They're going to talk about Hinch. They're going to talk about the scheme. I'm just not really invested in it. It was so long ago at this particular point in time. And we know everything, right? So, okay, we're going to get quotes about the scheme, we're going to get quotes about Cora. Like, I'm good. I, I, I don't really need that book. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. <laughs>